Today's podcast is sponsored by Zencaster. I use Zencaster to record the Tally Room podcast and it's an invaluable tool. I record pretty much every episode of this show remotely with my guests joining me from wherever they happen to be. Zencaster allows us to record with high quality sound even if the internet connection isn't the best. It records a high quality version on the local desktop and then uploads it when the internet connection allows, meaning that the audio the listeners hear is usually better than what I can hear when I'm recording. It also allows for recording video. I use it to be able to view my guests, but you can also record video in 1080p. On one or two occasions, I've used Zoom instead, and you really notice a difference. It's super easy to use Zencaster. I set up a link for a recording and send it to my guests, and we're getting started in minutes. Go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TallyRoom, and you'll get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. I want you to have the same easy experience as I do for all my podcasting needs. It's time to share your story. Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. Often arguments around electoral systems devolve into a yes or no question. Is proportional representation a good system or not? But in reality, there's a great deal of variation in electoral systems that allows you to pick some of the better features from majoritarian voting systems and proportional voting systems. My guest today is Dr. Simon Hicks. Simon is a professor of political science at the European University Institute. Hello, Simon. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for joining me. So for today's podcast, we're discussing a paper that, Simon, you co-wrote with John Carey about a decade ago, but one that I've been thinking about a lot when we talk about the design of electoral systems in Australia or just generally. It's about trying to find the electoral sweet spot where you get the best of both worlds from majoritarian electoral systems and proportional systems. Specifically, the paper argues in favour of proportional representation with a low district magnitude. Simon, what criteria have you used to judge different electoral systems? So the reason why we wrote the paper, did the research for the paper, is because until that point, the general consensus in political science was that you've got to make a choice. So majoritarian system, like in the UK or Australia with single-member districts, gives you stable government, people would argue, and that proportional representation gives you a highly representative parliament, you know, green parties, small parties, you know, so each vote counts equally. Um, and you get a fair representation in the parliament. So the standard view back then was you've got to pick one or the other, you can't have both. And so we thought, can we actually see if that is true? So we collected all the data from as many countries and as many governments and parliaments as we could over you know, an 80-year period across all the democratic world and said, you know, how representative is the parliament after an election and how stable is the government? And what we found is that actually it's not a simple one-to-one trade-off. It's an optimization problem, like a kind of engineering problem. And you could actually design a system that, that gets you pretty stable government and a pretty representative parliament. Not fully representative and not as stable, but it's a much better mix of the two if those are the two things you care about. And so you kind of ran through, I know there's at least one chart in the paper that kind of lists four different criteria. You pick numbers for each of them, like disproportionality less than five. I, I don't know if that's Gallagher index or something like that. Yep. yep. Um, the number of parties in government less than or equal to two, or less than three effective numbers of parties, which there's been previous podcasts where we've talked about the EMP and how that works. And I guess the other one, which I'd, I'm not really sure what the metric is for that one, but under a score of five for the distance between the voter and the government. 
Can you can you explain that one a little bit? There's two ways to think about representation. One is, you know, do votes map into seats in the parliament? And that's the, the Gallagher index. And so, you know, if, if it's a 100% proportional system and you win 5% of the votes, you get 5% of the seats. If you win 20%, you get 20% of the seats. So, you know, the, all the Gallagher index does is tell you how proportional or how disproportional the, the system is. So we just pick a number there that essentially says above or below this threshold of disproportionality, it means you, you've got a pretty proportional parliament. Another way to think about representation is, is the average member of the government or the average member of the parliament pretty close to the average voter? You know, if we could line the voters up as a left to right, and we could work out who the median voter is in the middle, is the government that forms or the median member of the parliament pretty close to that median voter? So, you know, you can think about the UK at the moment, you know, we've got a conservative government that's quite a long way from the average voter. You know, the last British election, well over 50% of the public voted not conservative, voted for parties to the left of the conservatives, and they still won the election. So in that situation, the government is quite offset from the average voter. And equally, in Britain, it's been the other way around at other times where, you know, we've had left-wing governments quite a long way from the average voter. On average, in proportional systems, you get a government close to the median voter because the, the median member of the parliament is invariably in a party that's going to be in the coalition if the coalition's got a form to win 50% of seats in the parliament. So, so this is a standard way that people like Bing Powell and uh, others have thought about trying to measure that aspect of representation. So two types of representation. One is representation in the parliament as a whole, and the other one is the representation of the median voter. Yeah, so these four criteria, kind of two of them go up as, I guess, the variable that you're tweaking is the average magnitude of the electoral system. Yeah, the variable we're tweaking is the number of MPs that are elected in a constituency. So, you know, in Australia, it's one. In the UK, it's one. In the US, it's one. In the Netherlands, it's 150. It's one national constituency, you know. But in the middle, there's lots of countries that have just a magnitude of two, three, four, five, six. So in Ireland, it's around about four. In Denmark, it's about five. In Spain, it's about five. And the cool thing about a relatively small district magnitude is if you're a really tiny party, you're not going to win a seat. And so voters think, why waste my vote? You know, so if you've got a district magnitude of four, you've got to win about a fifth of the votes to win a seat because it's district magnitude plus one. If you imagine all the parties winning 20% of the votes, four of them, any more than 20% of the vote, you're going to win a seat. Relatively small district magnitude, in a sense, keeps a lid on party system fragmentation. And so it means that all the big parties are getting a bit of a boost. They're winning seats in pretty much every seat across the country. And the smaller parties are winning some seats. So like in a majoritarian system that gives a massive boost to big parties and punishes all the small parties, relatively small district magnitude gives a bit of a boost to the big parties and a bit of a punishment to the small parties. That's why it keeps a lid on the fragmentation. So, so this is why it's a nice trade-off. You get some representation, but not too much fragmentation. People who are familiar with Australian elections would be a little bit familiar with that because we have some proportional systems, state level or upper houses that have that low, like we elect six senators per state with proportional system. Tasmania, which is our smallest state, uh, currently elects five but is actually going to seven whenever their government falls, which will happen at some point. They're, they're due to have an election in a year and a half and they will not make it all the way to their full term. So whenever that happens... Tasmania's parliament is expanding from five to seven. So we are familiar a little bit with those, but I think it's very interesting to think about the more generalized rather than just looking at one example of like how it works in Tasmania, for example. So the trade-off you get though, 
you've got to think of it if you start at the two ends, right? So if you start at the end of Britain and Australia with one person elected in every district, if you then said, how about we had two people elected in every district, suddenly some of the smaller parties would start to win a few more seats, but not too many. Immediately, you get an increase in representation if you said not so many voters would miss out in terms of feeling that they're not represented. But if you started at the other end, say the Netherlands, and you said, instead of having everybody elected in the country, let's divide the country up into 10 districts, suddenly a lot of those tiny parties are not going to win any seats and it becomes much easier to form a government, right? So, so immediately you can see you gain very quickly once you start to move from one end or the other and you kind of meet in the middle and you meet in the middle around about four to eight. So four to eight elected in each constituency gives you a pretty representative parliament and gives you around about two parties in the government. It doesn't give you single-member government. And so some people are critical of us for that, to say, yeah, but we want single-member government. One party in the government's the ideal accountability. We can see who's responsible for what policy. We can kick them out. But we come back and say, well, actually, if you look across the world, having two parties in the government, that tends to be pretty stable. They tend to last the full term. They tend to be pretty clear in what they're doing. It's not seven or eight parties in smoke-filled rooms. It's pretty clear before the election what's going to happen, what they stand for. You can still hold them to account. So when you think about governments in Germany, often it's two parties, or, or we had a government in Britain that was the Conservatives and the Lib Dems that was two parties. It went full term. You know, So having two parties, maybe not a as good for accountability reasons as one, but it's not too bad, right? So you can imagine, so look at New Zealand, for example, you ended up with two parties in the government and it works pretty well, right? So there's this kind of accountability idea. I think if you're someone who genuinely thinks single member electorate systems and, um, trying to minimize the number of parties to the absolute extreme, then you're probably not going to agree with this. But I think it's really interesting about how it shifts the debate away from it being one versus the other. And I think certainly in a country like Australia where we have PR, but we don't usually have PR for the chambers of government in the big jurisdictions, you know, it's still a thing that sort of is on the edge that it kind of allows you to argue for something which is a bit more moderate, a bit more sensible. You're not arguing for Israel. You're not arguing for the Netherlands. You're arguing for something else that's in the middle. Exactly. So when you think about the countries that sort of govern themselves pretty well, so, you know, all of Scandinavia, for example, they all have these type of systems, right? So so Portugal right now, you know, Portugal's doing pretty well and they end up with sort of two parties around the cabinet table. They have pretty small multi-member districts. You know, Ireland's got pretty small multi-member districts. They've got single transferable vote, bit similar to AV in Australia. And I know you also use STV. You know, again, they've got pretty small multi-member districts and their governments are more stable than the governments in Britain right now. So, you know, first past the post, single member districts work well if it's the same two parties in every district in the country, like the US, you could argue. There's other problems in the US, but in terms of you know representation, it's two parties. It's more or less two parties across the whole country. It doesn't work well when you get India, where in every constituency, it's two different parties. And that's the problem we now have in Britain. So, you know, around half of the seats in Britain in the last few elections have been Labour versus Conservative. And about half of them have been something else, Labour versus Lib Dem, Conservative versus Lib Dem, SNP versus Labour in Scotland, Plaid versus Labour in Wales, or some three-way seats, Greens versus Labour in Brighton and Bristol and some other places. So there's no guarantee that single-member districts give you stable government once you start to get party system fragmentation. So, you know, 
India, in a sense, has a coalition in every election that has to kind of form. They're two blocks, but they're coalitions of many, many, many parties in those coalitions with massive fragmentation because of the geographic heterogeneity across the country. So when you get geographic heterogeneity, first past the post or single member districts does not guarantee you're going to get just two parties. Mm. Again, to take the Australian example of that, um, it's not as extreme as in the UK, but we are noticing a real change in the last 10, 15 years where because we use AV, preferential voting, there's the final two candidates who make it to the end of the count. And it's very easy to know who those are. And when I first started getting involved in politics around 2004, almost every seat, like 95% of seats, there might be five seats 10 maximum in the country, which weren't Labor versus Coalition. Yeah. And now in 2022, there was 27 seats. You know, so there's Independent versus Liberal and there's Greens versus Labor and there's Greens versus Liberal. Oh, you saw what the Teals you saw in the last election, the Teals versus Conservative? Yeah, about a quarter of those were Teals, yeah. So we're not as advanced as the UK in terms of that fragmentation, but the same thing is happening. So, yeah, we're seeing that too here. Imagine extrapolating that forward another 10 years and you've got single-member districts and you end up with a situation where you're going to have to form a coalition of you know, broader coalition governments, or unstable governments, minority governments. And in fact, it might be better just to have you know, three or four seat multi-member districts. And then, um, you know, so that will give you a, a much more stable, secure, predictable type of election outcome. And then you may get a situation where perhaps Labour and Greens might run together in the elections like they're now doing in the Netherlands, or like they do in Scandinavia. In Scandinavia, you tend to get two blocks of parties. So they get pretty accountable government with PR. When you get a kind of centre-left block of the Social Democrats, Greens, and the social liberals against a centre-right block of conservatives, Christian Democrats, and free market liberals. And, and they mm. go up against each other and they say, you know, if we win a majority of seats, we're going to form a government. If they win a majority of seats, they're going to form a government. So you can get that kind of two-block dynamism with relatively stable government that then forms afterwards. Yeah, for sure. The other thing I think we like about relatively small multi-member districts is within that, you still have some choices that are interesting. So, for example, you can have STV, like in Ireland, or you can have open party lists. A lot of places have that, where you can vote for the party and vote for a candidate on a list from the party. So that's very hard in very large, uh, you know, in the Netherlands, they've moved to open list systems. And the ballot paper in the Netherlands is absolutely massive. You know, 34 parties, 150 names for each party on the ballot paper. I mean, it's completely nuts. Have you ever seen a ballot for the New South Wales Legislative Council? Because we elect we elect twenty one at a time with STV, and there's actually another state in Australia which started twenty twenty five. They're electing thirty seven members in one constituency with STV. It basically turns into party lists where all the candidates are listed below. You can theoretically vote for an individual candidate, but no one does. And it takes a month to count the ballots, and the ballot paper is enormous. Because again, we do see here that with the places where you elect five, six, seven members with STV. I mean, it's all STV, like every, there is no other form of PR in this country. Um, but you do have that ability to know who you're voting for a bit more and voting for individuals. And with those giant constituencies, it doesn't happen. Exactly. So voting for individuals and parties really works when you have small districts. Because then, as you say, there's a small choice within each party and it's a nice balance between voting for a party and voting for a candidate. I mean, the most extreme example is in Brazil, where they have open list PR, 
And in Sao Paulo, they I think it's an 80-seat district. Can you imagine? It, it's like, you know, it's a cacophony, 30-something parties, 80 candidates from each party. And, no, you know, the candidates campaign with a number. I'm number 465. Vote for me. You know, and you've just got one vote there. If you want choice within parties, either through STV or through open list PR, you've got to have small districts. And so that's another aspect of why having small districts works with either STV or with open list PR. Because it keeps the choice manageable, tractable, or like understandable for the voter. Whereas once the choice becomes too enormous, Thomas Hare, when he first developed STV, his idea was the whole of the UK would be one constituency, I think, (laughs) when he first developed the idea. And then someone else down the track was like, we could not do that. We could have districts. But that was kind of the, you know, 1850s or whatever. That was their idea. So there's studies in psychology and in economics about what's the optimal choice set. Right. So, you know, like in economics, when they liberalized uh, mobile phones and created all these mobile phone companies, and uh, you know, they studied what's the optimal choice set. When, when are there too many choices that the consumers can't make a choice anymore? So they just stick with the one they've got. And it's around about seven. Psychologists have been studying this for a while. And we read some of that work when we were doing the paper. And, and in a sense, we like to have choice, but not too much choice. Give us too much choice. And it becomes just too difficult to understand or to track. So we might as well stick with what we know. So again, keeping that choice set relatively small, I think it it means that, you know, we are social beings, but we're not computers. (laughs) So, so you need, and you just mentioned that about STV. STV only, I think works well if you've got relatively small districts, go up to big districts, 25, 30, Voters start to go, I've got to go down the full ballot paper. I've no idea what I'm doing. Yeah, and the only way it works here is you effectively turn it into preferential party lists. So you go down one list with one party, the next list for the next party, and so on. So, yeah. We have shortcuts. You vote one for Labor, and it's considered a vote a one, two, three, four, five vote for Labor. Ah. And you don't actually have to number all the individuals. But in practice, what it means is even though you theoretically can choose your individual candidates, no one does. Like, it, it doesn't kick in. There you go. You see, you've now taken away the whole purpose of STV has now been taken away from you. You're now back to closed party list, right? Yeah, absolutely. The same thing happens, we know, with very large multi-member districts with list PR, the smaller the number of voters who vote for individual candidates. Exactly the same, exactly the same thing. So, you know, Belgium, again, relatively small uh, lists versus the Netherlands. The Netherlands, massive constituency, open list. Most people just pick the party because they can't figure out who they actually want to vote for. So there's these kind of four different metrics we talked about. And the two of them go like the disproportionality gets lower as the magnitude goes up. And maybe the voter government distance also gets lower as you go up. And then on the other side, the number of parties in government and the effective number of parties, which can both be a metric of vote winning and seat winning, right? Yeah, so increased district size, two get better and two get worse. And at a certain point, they kind of cross. And so that's the idea of the sweet spot. So, you know, as you increase district magnitude, representation gets better, voter distance between the voter and the average member of the government or the average member of parliament gets better, number of parties gets worse, and uh, stability of the government gets worse. So you can see at a certain point, they cross. And so, you know, people have different tastes. We used to think you've got to choose either accountable, stable government or representative parliament. And I, th- I think that's a false choice. And I think 
There's been other work to say for a while in the early 90s, people thought that the best of both worlds was a German type system with single member districts and lists on the top. And a lot of the new democracies in Eastern Europe adopted these systems. And then they realized most people don't vote, use these systems like the Germans do. If you give people two votes, they'll vote for different parties. And so you get fragmentation. So, so a lot of people found when they introduced them in Italy and they introduced them in Lithuania and other parts of Central Eastern Europe that you've got a massive fragmentation and people went, well, actually, maybe it's not the best of both worlds afterward. Or they thought single member districts plus a bit of PR is going to give you a nice balance, but actually it's not true. Again, in our context, we're right next to New Zealand and New Zealand just had an election. And it is interesting because you have those different PR models. You've got the New Zealand one. And I've often thought there's some things that are good about it, but I really hate, I hate two things I hate about it. One is there's one p- particularly popular politician and you vote for them and they, they bring in like seven other people with them. Whereas if there was regional PR, probably they would get a big vote in the region where they ran. I've said sometimes to people in New Zealand, it was like if you divided the country up into eight regions, which a New Zealand election analyst went back and went, well, if I map them onto the rugby zones, then it fits quite well, which is the way New Zealanders think about this stuff. But I was like, if you did MMP with those rugby zones, you wouldn't need a threshold. And also, I really hate the kind of you get 4.9% of the vote and you win nothing and you get 5.1% and you win a bunch of seats. And I think those, you know, in Australia, we sometimes have really popular independents and sometimes they will go and form a party, but they don't have that phenomenon that, you know, if you vote for Pauline Hanson across the whole country, at least, you don't bring in seven other people. You've got to actively choose to vote for the people on their party ticket. And I think I really do notice those differences that I think it's got some issues, even though the overall maybe fragmentation of the system might be similar. That's right. I mean, fragmentation is kept down by two things in New Zealand. One is the threshold that keeps the fragmentation down. But but as you say, it's a relatively brutal, blunt, arbitrary threshold. Whereas another way to introduce a de facto threshold would, as you say, have been small multi-member districts. The other thing that keeps the numbers down is it's a relatively small parliament. So what we know from plenty of other work that, you know, bigger countries with bigger parliaments and more seats at stake tend to lead to more parties, just because there's just more seats to grab, right? So, and that leads to more. So it's a relatively small country with a small parliament plus a threshold. All those things you've said are are right about the problems with the mixed member proportional. The other thing is a lot of people don't like two different types of MPs. They, They behave very differently. You've got an MP who's beholden to the party because they're on a party list, and you've got an MP who just responds to the constituency. Do we want that? Do you want MPs to behave in different ways? It's the same parliament, it's the same body, they're meant to be doing the same job, but they don't do the same job. What we know from multi-member systems is they do different, they sit on different types of committees. The ones elected in single-member constituencies tend to sit on committees that bring home the bacon to local government. And the ones that get elected on party lists, they're doing the big national public spending stuff like defence and this sort of thing. I mean... So some people like that, but I don't like that. I I think when we elect a parliament, we want to treat all of those elected politicians the same and we should hold them accountable in the same sort of way. So either we want to elect them in constituencies or we want to elect them on lists. We can't have some of the other one side and some of the other. I mean, New Zealand right now, the Green Party and the ACT Party have never, ever won more than one seat and they've started winning more of those electorates. And I was talking to someone from over there and saying, why does anyone care? 
Like, why does it matter? And they were saying those electorate MPs get extra resources. They get extra incumbency benefits. And so the the Green Party just won two seats in Wellington and they expect that that will have party building benefits for the Greens that the Labor Party has been wiped out of Wellington. Actually, the same thing happened in Brisbane in our election last year. Wellington and Brisbane now have a number of Greens holding electorates and they don't have any Labor MPs. That's considered to have this, it helps with the incumbency effect and it is that divide. The other thing I noticed, because my my day job is working for a software company and we had to update all the New Zealand MPs on our system, the new government has a bunch of MPs who have gone from being list MPs to electorate MPs and the new opposition has had a bunch of people go the other way. So I think there's also a divide where the parties in government have a lot more of those electorate MPs than the parties in opposition. And so maybe that kind of makes sense in some ways, but it means that they're not symmetrical. So that's right. And there's one other aspect of the small member districts we've not really talked about, So, which is when you have the single member districts, you get a, a person who wins that district you know, with 50% plus one of the vote in, you know, the AV system in Australia. And all of those 49% who didn't vote for that person are saying, oh, I'm not represented. And so you can have whole swathes of the country that are a little bit right wing or a little bit left wing. And those parties winning all of those seats, that's not really a reflection of how the votes actually went in those parts of the world, right? We think about the situation, I grew up in the southeast of England, and the Conservatives won all of these seats everywhere in Sussex where I grew up and Kent and Surrey and all the other places in the southeast of England. And Labour were winning 20% of the vote, but Labour didn't have a single MP. So for years, the uh, Labour voters in that part of the world or the Lib Dem voters in that part of the world are saying, I'm not, I'm not represented. Whereas if you, ha- if you combine them into multi-member seats, Labour would win a seat, Lib Dems would win a seat, maybe the Greens win a seat, and at least those voters are feeling like, oh, there's somebody I voted for who got elected somewhere in the area close to me, even though the other guys are winning more. Um, so it, that quality of representation, I think, improves massively as soon as you move from single-member constituencies to two or three. I know it's an enormous problem in Canada where like governments get formed that just don't have any MPs from three or four large-sized provinces. You know, like the Liberal Party forms a government while not winning, basically not winning any seats in the prairies. And so they just, it's not even, even if they want to represent those areas, they just don't have anyone at the table, right? And then the other way around, the Conservatives win a majority without having any MPs in any cities. Because we've seen for a long time it's been this two-party system. It hasn't been such an issue here, but we're starting to notice it that, like, like I mentioned inner-city Brisbane, there's three seats in that area, which largely, roughly, the vote in those three seats split three ways. It was a third Labor, a third Greens, a third Liberal. And in all three places, the Labor preferences elected the Greens over the Liberal. And so the Greens won three out of three with about a third of the vote. And Labor got about a third of the vote and won nothing. And like, admittedly, those are left-leaning areas. So like, it's more, it makes more sense that the Liberals didn't win any seats and the Liberals then won all the seats around it. So they're less less underrepresented. But you're starting to notice those localised patterns where it's not just one seat where you get that weird thing where we, I mean, we had a seat in Melbourne where the third place candidate was 1% behind the first place candidate. And it was basically a three-way tie, basically. And it turned into whoever got knocked out first would then decide who would win. But when those scale up and you get a number of neighbouring seats where that happens, you can just have a landslide on a very small share of the vote. So those three green seats, imagine if you put them together in one three-member constituency, 
Greens would probably win one, Labor would probably win one, and the Libs would probably win one, right? And and you'd say that's kind of a reasonable representation of the voters in that part of the world, right? So it's kind of so so that's where I think I think representation is important. But of course, you know, when PR was originally designed, that was all what people mostly cared about. They want you know the synchronon of democracy was representation and. Parliament was meant to be a microcosm of the country. I mean, that was the standard idea of PR when it was introduced in large parts of Europe in the early 20th century. And that sort of worked when you had four or five parties being elected in places. But today, society is far, far more complicated and complex. Lots of different types of economic and social divisions and patterns. And, you know, the world's a much more fragmented and pluralist, politically pluralist place than it was before. So pure PR is going to give you 30-something parties. The Netherlands has got 34 parties standing, you know, in the election. So that's why proportionality is a great thing, as long as we put a lid on it, as long as you want some incentives to for people to voters to coordinate, voters to coordinate and say, you know, let's form a block, let's form, let, you know, and, and without that incentive to say, don't throw away your vote completely, there's got to be something. And Thresholds used to be a way to do that, but thresholds aren't working in many places. So Germany, you've got a 5% threshold, and all the parties are now just above the 5% threshold. So you've got more parties in the German parliament than we never had before. So you've got the Greens, radical left, now the radical right, AFD, liberals, Christian Democrats, uh, Christian Social Union, um, Social Democrats. And so you've got seven parties in the parliament. And who knows, another one might come along and they'll just about get above the 5% threshold. So now forming a government in Germany for the first time now, you've got three parties sitting around the cabinet table, which is not too bad. But still, I think had you had small multi-member districts in Germany now, I think you might end up probably with a bigger boost for the bigger parties and perhaps only two around the cabinet table rather than three. I mean, one of the things I really like about this theory as well is when you get people arguing for single-member districts and they talk about stable government and accountability, in order to argue for proportional representation, you don't need to dismiss those ideas. You just need to say, I'm not going to go quite as far as you are. You know, like you could admit that that is a useful good and not like I think sometimes arguments around PR become stability and accountability doesn't matter. Exactly. And it's just all about um, proportionality. And this allows you to care about both. And we do in the paper, we look at some kind of social and economic policy outcomes towards the end of the paper. And a lot of people have done that kind of thing. And so, because having unstable government or having too many parties around the cabinet table does have real problems for voters, right? Because you tend to get much higher public debt. You tend to get, you know, each party's got their own public spending priority. And so the more parties you've got around the cabinet table, the more things they want money spent on, the more they're going to run up debt, the more they're going to raise taxes. So, you know, classically, people on the right or economically right have not liked PR for those kind of things. They want one party in government to hold a lid on that kind of stuff. But what you can see is with relatively small number of parties around the cabinet table, you can still hold them to account. So there was a nice piece of research looking at what happens if you have an economic shock. So if you have an economic downturn, can the voters punish the government for it? So if you've got sort of economic crisis, rising unemployment, high inflation, you know, do the voters punish the government at the next election? They tend to punish the government at the next election in majoritarian systems or in systems where you've got a small number of parties in the government. When you've got loads of parties in the government, you don't know who to blame because they go, well, it's not my fault, it was his fault. And so, so, so the voters are completely confused. And so there's very little relationship between economic performance 
And what then happens in an election in these very high magnitude PR systems? So, so actually, there's a whole other kind of public policy outcomes aspect to this that the economists focus on more than political scientists, but I think are very important to the average voter. They're not just thinking about what happens in this election, how representative is it? They're thinking, are they going to do a good job? Are they going to do a decent job in running the country? And I think that's also an aspect that often PR defenders find it difficult to defend against. And with our system, I think you, there's pretty good defence for that. So it's been about a decade since you did this research. Are you finding examples of, you know, countries don't change their voting systems that often, right? These debates only get opened up kind of once a generation or, every, frankly, once every couple of generations. Are you finding any examples of where these principles, these theories have come into play when a country has been considering tweaking its voting system? Yeah, so... When we were writing that, there was already a bunch of countries that had those types of systems already. And we've seen two or three move towards them. There's a couple of interesting cases. So one was Tunisia. when After the Arab Spring, Tunisia was a new democracy and so was Egypt. And it was interesting how Egypt went down one route in designing the electoral system and they had very big multi-member constituencies. And Tunisia went down another route and had relatively small constituencies as sort of our model. And in Egypt... What happened was there was a whole bunch of new parties, new secular parties, and they were massively fragmented. And so Muslim Brotherhood won the election because they had the most votes. All the opposition parties to Muslim Brotherhood were hugely fragmented. Muslim Brotherhood then formed an election, and then you had a military coup. Uh, In Tunisia, what happened is the secular parties thought, we got relatively small multi-member districts. We've got to form some kind of coalition here. So you had a lid on fragmentation. Again, Muslim Brotherhood ended up as the largest party. But there was another big secular party and they formed a coalition. So you had a government. Since then, you've had economic crisis down the pipe that was largely not necessarily Tunisia's doing. And then you've had unstable democracy. But for a while, it looked like actually Tunisia was the one country that came out of the Arab Spring with a new democracy. So in a sense, we like to feel that our model gave them a chance at least, whereas I think the chance was taken away straight away in Egypt. Another model was Chile. So Chile moved from two-seat districts. So the the Pinochet model of the electoral system in Chile was having two MPs election every constituency. Some parts of the countries it was two on the right, some parts of the country it was two on the left, other parts it was one each. And it really kept a lid on the fragmentation of the party system, but led to hugely disproportional outcomes. And so you'd end up with the centre-right winning whopping great majorities, which is what you know, Pinochet wanted. And then a period where the centre-left were winning very big majorities, which he hadn't planned for. And then over time, Chile said, hang on, this this isn't really working. And so they moved to increase the district magnitude to around about four and to introduce open list PR. And so now you've got relatively stable government, relatively small government. They've just got now a government on the centre-right. They had a government on the centre-left. And now they're going through a process of constitutional reform. But I think they're probably going to keep the electoral system that they've now designed that, that, that's modelled on, on our model. Yeah, I've definitely looked into magnitude two before being probably one of the worst magnitudes you can have. It's the worst of both worlds. <laughs> It's actually probably less proportional than than magnitude one, right? And it takes away so much accountability because any place that's at all competitive becomes safe seats. It's only the places where it's landslide which come into play. Uh, we have some examples of magnitude two wards in our local councils and generally they perform extremely poorly compared to magnitude three, four, five or whatever. But there's something about two, something about the number that seems to have its own dynamics that just are terrible. 
though since that paper, we've been called into various places. I mean, there's been an interesting debate in Canada, particularly on the west coast of Canada, in Vancouver, and where they've been talking about replacing their single member district, particularly for the province election there. I've been to the Czech Republic, where they were thinking of reducing their district magnitude in the Czech Republic. Uh, there was a proposal to reduce it, and it was kicked out by the Supreme Court, saying it wasn't proportional enough, and the Constitution says it's got to be a proportional electoral system. <laughs> so that was interesting. So I think there's a growing debate. And what, what, what I think is healthy is we've, I think, do feel that we've moved away from the standard, you've got to have majoritarian or you've got to have PR. And I do think now, you know, we're in the mix there with discussions about the systems that try to maximise across a bunch of different criteria. Okay, so that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Simon, for joining me. Thank you so much. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Mastodon at tallyroom at mastodon.au or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris Bro for writing the music here in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. 